Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. Before we hop right into things, here's an idea of the kinds of topics that you can expect to hear about on today's episode. So we cover greenhouse gases and the greenhouse gas effect, the Gaia hypothesis, dinosaur sustainability, and tropical Antarctic fossils. We also dip into a bit of background in Alex's undergraduate in human environment and geography, and how he studied how humans relate to the environment. We also discuss the five main components of the climate crisis, which you'll hear about more in detail. What natural phenomena allow us to know the climate of the past, which includes the tree rings Alex studies? How do sampled tree rings transforming these samples to create models of the history of our environment? The caribou crisis, Alex's midnight moose encounters, seeing the big picture as an academic, and the impact and the importance of having a great supervisor throughout your graduate career. So as always, this and much, much more in the next hour. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Alex Pache is a Master of Science graduate from Concordia University, and happens to be my guest today. His thesis focused on the study of past climate of Quebec using tree rings. His undergraduate research project was about James Bay Cree access to post-secondary education. Alex is a founding member and presentation coordinator of the Concordia Climate Emergency Committee, an initiative developed to raise awareness and action related to the climate crisis. He has presented on the subject to over 700 students across the Montreal area, and now to you, the listener, today. Outside of academia, Alex has a passion for hiking, wildlife photography, cinema, and documentaries. I can attest I've seen many of his photos and gone with him on some of these hiking photography excursions. He's quite a talented man. So without further ado, Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Alex, uh, just for context, Alex is a very good friend of a close friend of mine who has now left the city. So we just have each other. And uh, we are basically (laughs) hand in hand all day long, weeping at the loss of our friend. So just to uh, just to kind of dive right in, I'm I'm curious. We've had a a bunch of guests on already, maybe six or seven guests. And so you are uh, you are unique in that you do not research anything related to psychology or cognitive science, whereas a lot of my guests have been in those domains so far. So this is kind of a new thing for me. I, I am definitely not well versed in the climate crisis in terms of the nitty gritty, the details. So I would love to educate myself through this, through this meeting we have, and also basically kind of act as the, as the listener with essentially no background knowledge. So how would you describe the climate crisis in terms of what the key components are, things that we need to focus on, things that I guess maybe inspired you to start a master's degree in that field? Well, the key components of the climate crisis are definitely greenhouse gases and our greenhouse gas emissions. So 
within that category, there is carbon dioxide, the one that I think everybody knows. And that's from burning fossil fuels, mostly. And then, of course, there's methane. That's why a lot of people uh, are vegan, or at least a lot of environmentalists are vegan, is because a lot of methane, it's a very powerful greenhouse gas. So I should explain what greenhouse gas is. It's a gas mm-hmm. that when it's in the atmosphere, it blocks, it basically blocks heat. It acts like a greenhouse in that energy gets in, but energy is not able to get out. And energy that's from because, the sun, presumably. Yeah. 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 So UV light from the sun and in a greenhouse, for example, is able to get through the glass. But then once it hits the objects in the greenhouse, it's re-reflected as, are re-emitted as infrared. And that infrared, the wavelength is larger and it's not able to get through the glass so that the heat is contained within the greenhouse. So let's actually talk about light for a second because we, we talked about reflection and we talked about wavelength. So let's actually just really dive into the basics for a couple of minutes. So uh, I will tell you what I know and then you can tell me what, what needs to be filled in. So light comes from the sun. When it travels through space, is it UV light? Well, there's or all, it's, whole, it's all kinds of lights. Lots of yeah, lights. So, light, all kinds of light, light, right? All kinds of light. And the kind of light that passes through our through the clouds, through our atmosphere, is UV and visible light, right? Right. Um, and I guess other light, also infrared. Does the infrared Yeah, light? visible light, uh, infrared too. Um, but what yeah, yeah, continue. Okay, right. And so it's wavelength basically is is can be related to the energy of the light, right? the intensity to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're saying that when cows fart and when we drive cars, we are essentially creating a gaseous greenhouse that is enveloping the entire globe and acts to inhibit the release of heat back out through the atmosphere, which would normally happen did we not have this greenhouse effect. Right. And the yeah. greenhouse effect is incredibly important too like we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the greenhouse effect what's different now is that we've gone beyond the natural at least the natural range since civilization has existed since life as we know it has existed so for the past eight hundred thousand years i think it is the greenhouse gas levels were at a, a certain level like of course it fluctuated a lot over this time we look at it mostly through co2 but anyway, we, we've been at a certain amount of CO2 and greenhouse gases. And then since we've been burning all oil and natural gas, coal, and intensive agriculture, among other things, and destroying our soils, and soils actually hold a lot of carbon naturally, but the way that we, we do agriculture now, it actually releases a lot of it and it doesn't contain it. So all these things together means that there's this huge blanket of gas that's keeping heat in to a degree greater than it has in the past 800,000 years. Okay. And this has kind of been like, you're implying this has been a, a rapid increase since let's yeah. say the industrial revolution. Yeah, exactly. Because all this carbon used to be in the atmosphere, but trees, and we could go back to trees later because that's what I study, trees breathe in the CO2 and use it to build themselves basically. And then over like geological timescales, so hundreds of thousands of years, this is, gets buried underground. And then with pressure and heat, it turns into oil. So basically, 
let's say before 800 whoa wait a second that's insanity i did not know that co2 gets transformed eventually into oil via trees pulling it out of the air and shoving it into their roots into the soil yeah oh my goodness i did not know that i mean it's it's a bit more complex than that like right right but uh and then i and actually most of the oil from my understanding is actually from not from trees Uh, what coal is primarily from trees and like forests and ancient swamps that got buried underground over hundreds of thousands of years whereas oils and natural gases generally tend to be from algae so for example where we are here in montreal there used to be an ocean on top of it's called the champlain sea and so this ocean was covered with algae for example and this algae also breathes CO2 and uses it for its own structure. And then when it dies, it floats or it sinks to the bottom of the ocean and creates layers of basically carbon. And over time, that's how a lot of oil is created over hundreds of thousands of years. Right. Because oil is basically just strings of car- it's chains of carbon molecules. Mm. Right. And so the problem with what's happening now is that all this carbon that was stored for such a long time and allowed us, allowed the the climate to become what it is to support life as we know it. Well, we started taking all that carbon that was stored and putting it back in the atmosphere. So we're going to go back to a climate way before human civilization, which is uh, dangerous. So hold on a second. The earth is, a, is, is kind of like one giant living organism, right? Covered in trees, covered in algae, in, in, in oceans, there's life forms all over the planet before we were here, right? First single-celled organisms arose three to four billion years ago. So why is it that the earth couldn't account for this change? Was it that the change was too rapid? Like why aren't trees growing twice as fast with, with trunks that are three times the thickness and they're just accounting for all of this fuel we're putting back into the air? Because you said that trees kind of take in CO2. So we're saying, hey, trees, here's some more CO2. We're putting it back in the air. Why don't you double up, double time now, pull that stuff in, extend those branches a little further, a little faster. Yeah. I want to correct myself. I don't, it's not algae, it's phytoplankton, what I was referring to. And that's what like it whales eat, right? So yes. clearly there's a lot of them there if these huge uh, whales could survive off of just eating plankton. And also, did you hear about the whale in Montreal that it died? I actually just took a quick glance at the cover of the, the Montreal Gazette this morning. And so I, I didn't read the article, but what's the what's story behind that? So there's this whale, for people who don't know, there's a whale that came up the St. Lawrence River near Montreal, which is freshwater. Whales don't belong in freshwater. It's the first time it's ever happened um, that we know of. And it was kind of an exciting thing. And then it died because it didn't belong. Yeah, it didn't belong, but it started heading back up the St. Lawrence towards the ocean. And then I think, uh, I haven't read up on it today, but yesterday they were saying they think it was hit by a boat. Oh, no. Anyway, sorry. Um, sure, that's definitely on a side, but I yeah, good. To, that's a fun whale fact. Uh, well, it's it's a it's a fun whale fact, kind of encapsulated in a very sad whale. Fact. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so your question was why don't trees? Why doesn't the earth, why can't the earth yeah uh, recalibrate like, like rebalance yeah. itself? So it does to a certain extent, and that's that's something called the Gaia hypothesis, which uh, basically suggests that the earth is a living organism that 
rebalances itself and that's why life has been able to be sustained for so long because once once it gets to a certain level of life it's able to balance things out and that's true for the longest time um of course there were mass extinctions like the most recent one before like before humans was from a meteor 65 million years ago but then of course earth rebalanced itself that's the uh, chicxulub asteroid that killed off the dinosaurs exactly great okay not great for them, but great for us. <laughs> yeah, great for us. We might not be here had it not been for that kind uh, of reason. I don't, yeah, I don't think we would have been here. Right? Because yeah. so, so actually, this is something that, that's maybe fun for the listeners. This is a fact. I, you could correct me on the exact numbers here. I believe the, there are two well-known dinosaur species. I think like the, the Triceratops and the T-Rex or something that people would assume, I guess, they're dinosaurs. They must have kind of lived together. But the, the temporal distance between them is like, twice the distance between us and the last dinosaurs wow there are dinosaurs that lived 250 million years ago so almost 200 million years between the start of the dinosaurs and the end of the dinosaurs and you know the end of the dinosaurs was only 65 million years ago so we're actually closer to some dinosaurs than they were to the other dinosaurs themselves All right and yeah that's super interesting uh like the the amount of time that dinosaurs survived is really impressive and looking at what uh, we're doing it looks like we're not nearly as sustainable as the dinosaurs right seriously uh, but but there's there a trade-off right dinosaurs didn't didn't grow the way we grow mentally cognitively oh yeah uh, technologically economically all of the alis it's like you could argue that we've we've lived as much as they are probably more than they did in a much shorter span of time right right like exactly more, we expedited like, uh, yeah we don't um, have time to kill. I got a bus yeah. to catch. That's the human motto. Dinosaurs, oh, we got nowhere to go. We're herbivorous. So that, that actually it ties into what I was saying, how before there used to be a lot more carbon. Like a lot of this oil that we're using was from these times when the dinosaurs were, and it was much warmer than there was a lot more carbon in the atmosphere. For example, Antarctica used to have, like, there's fossils of, of like tropical plants on, on, on our, Antarctica because it was so warm because there was a lot more greenhouse gases so what we're looking at if we do business as usual in like hundreds of years there might be maybe more than hundreds of years but eventually there will be plants all over antarctica again you know so hold on a second but, why are we so and I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here but like yeah. why are we so hard on ourselves that the average global temperature has increased a few degrees in the last hundred thousand years when we still don't even remotely have tropical plants in antarctica technically we should be doing all right yeah and this goes back to the other question you asked about the, why don't trees just grow faster it's it's also about how fast nature can adapt so usually these climate these changes of climate have happened not to the degree that we're expecting it to happen, but they've happened and they haven't slower in general. When they haven't happened slowly, for example, 65 million years ago when the meter hit, we saw a huge mass extinction and completely changed the surface of the planet, right? Yeah. So the planet and ecosystems have this capacity to change uh, and adapt over longer time spans. And what we're doing is we're accelerating the change so quickly that and um among all the other environmental destruction we're doing like so you can argue that maybe if we hadn't done all the environmental destruction that we've been doing from pollution to habitat loss among other things then a lot of species would be able to adapt maybe but the fact that 
climate is changing, is expected to change very quickly in, ge in a geological timescale perspective and their habitat for them to move and adapt. A lot of mammals, it's, it's already very fragmented. There's also a lot of pollution and other issues. So the capacity for Earth changes quickly and for the ecosystem changes quickly is greatly reduced. Mm -hmm. um, We're too good at being bad. Yeah. yeah. We you need to be punished. We, <laughs> no, I don't. We need to go to our room. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. Okay. No, th this is uh, good. I, naturally, the way that the episodes have been going uh, thus far have has kind of tended towards a bit of like an exploration of some of the top main topics that relate to uh, the guest specific research. So I feel like at least personally, I am I'm well couched in the terminology now have a bit better idea of where we stand. So how does how does everything that we've just discussed how did it either inspire you or how does it relate to your specific research on tree rings we, we we did discuss trees what is it about tree rings that allows one to complete a master's degree successfully and hopefully <laughs> extract some 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 knowledge that we can then either apply or build upon well so i've always i've always been interested in the environment just because uh i guess I did a lot of camping as a kid, and then I grew up right on the in the suburbs, right beside a, a nice protected area mm -hmm. with a lake. And I don't know, you've, I would just constantly hear my, all this environmental destruction, and um, I felt a very strong connection to nature. And so I wanted to understand. And there's all these conflicting opinions about things too, especially when it comes to climate change. And I wanted to understand, like better our relationship to the environment so i went and i studied at concordia in my undergrad program called human environment which is is part of the geography department mm -hmm. and so it's basically the study of how humans relate to the environment so we we do a lot of sociology type things as well as physical geography so understanding how environments work natural systems work mm -hmm. And that was perfect for me because I'm not, I've never been like a hard pure science person. Like a, we met in, in, uh, what was it the physics class? Physics, intro mechanics. Yeah. Yeah. So I was tried doing that and it's just, it's too dry for me. I need, I need a human aspect to when sure. I'm studying things. Yeah, that's fair. So then I dropped that and went into the, what I thought was perfect of having some of this like hard science with, the human side to it as well sure and then i sort of got lucky in that i had good grades and a new professor had arrived in our department so what you when you described my my little uh, when you said my little bio I, I my undergrad research was actually with indigenous people and their access to education which is like totally different from my master's research of tree rings and climate and that's just because I I met this new prof. She was looking for somebody. She's actually indigenous and I was doing indigenous research and I also had the grades she was looking for. And so she pulled me into tree rings and climate and I was very interested in the subject. I had no experience in the subject really. She mentored me and I got, I just got lucky. I kind of fell into it and I, it allowed me. So 
it was it, it's pretty hard science what i'm doing as in there's no really human aspect to it and that's why i sort of got involved with the climate emergency committee to have that human aspect of communicating these ideas yeah yeah this is- that's a natural progression to kind of ensure that you have that balance. If you feel that you're lacking it in, in your, in your research, it, it could be a, a very, very tough road to go down if you don't feel like you're fully satisfied and your needs are met in that way. Exactly. We could definitely dive more into the training stuff, but now that you mentioned the CCEC or the Concordia climate emergency committee, you said that you've, you've spoken to over 700 students across Montreal. How long is your presentation usually do, you think that we could get maybe the Redux edition here right now, live uh, on Abstract Cast, the uh, five-minute version of your CCEC presentation? I could just, I, I, it takes like an hour and 15 minutes. So we've always had a hard time describing it because it's, it's more of an interactive game than it is a presentation. It's set up like a, a game show with like an interactive PowerPoint that we designed that's like really poppy, like, like very like bright colors and they pick questions they go on teams and they pick questions and get points and stuff like that but that's pretty cool what it's uh trying to convey are the three main what we determine what we suggest are the three main component our five main components of the climate crisis which is first the climate science behind it then the impacts of the climate crisis on humans the impacts on nature the uh individual personal solutions and the system solutions and so they have these different these five categories to pick from they get different points based on different difficulty of questions and we it was really well received i mean me and a couple of other students uh, did all the research for it and we're still working on it now and we collaborated with a couple colleges to uh present it there and really refine it and get feedback from students get feedback from teachers is this a presentation that you do at like a high school level or at universities? So we've done it in high schools, in CSHEPs and in universities. So CSHEP is, for those who don't know, it's the, in Quebec, our system has like a sort of a in-between between high school and university of two years usually. When you're in it, it seems like it's weird and a waste of time. But when you're out of it, you realize it was actually a pretty, pretty sweet gig. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. I would, I, I I would go it. back. I, yeah, it was great. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was a very good buffer time. For sure. Um, so we've presented there. And what's great about the presentation is it's sort of adaptable to late high school and university students. I mean, we've done it in business classes and they've done like very well. And then we've went to like normal classes uh, or like sociology classes and they've done worse than the business classes. So like it really depends on the group of students and their own personal interests, but it's really applicable to anybody above, I would say, like 15 or 16. I like that you used normal and, um, and sociology interchangeably. <laughs> <laughs> normal sociology classes, you know, <laughs> the normal classes for everybody, right? Because the world revolves around me and my studies. Uh, I kid, I kid, I kid. Um, yeah, physics but... is definitely not normal. And you, you were smart to leave that field, as I did myself. Did you start in physics, like in a physics major? No, I was in pure and applied sciences. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Back at Dawson, that was yeah. yeah. Before you even no, know. No, yeah, my major, my major is in human environment, which is bachelor's of arts. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's university. That's later stuff. Okay. I like that you just broke down these kind of five main components of the climate crisis into climate science, uh, impacts on humans, impacts on nature, 
individual personal solutions and individual and, and system solutions. These are the five. Would you be able to classify your current or your previous master's research? Because you just finished your master's, right? Yeah. Yeah. Congrats. Like a, like a couple of weeks ago. Thank that's you. awesome. Yeah. That, that's, that's really great to hear. Um, it feels great. Yeah, that's sweet. One of the guests we had on a few weeks ago uh, just finished his master's as well. He did it in a single year. Wow. Um, different, different story. Episode two, Sean Devine, if you haven't listened to that one yet. This is, uh, this is Alex Pache, for those who forgot for the beginning, <laughs> or if you uh, skipped to 20 minutes in and just started listening now. So yeah, how would your how would your master's research fit into these five components of the crisis? Does it does it kind of fit nicely into one of the components? Like yeah, I guess absolutely. impact on nature seems like it would probably be one of the main ones. Yeah, you, yeah, that's a that's an interesting way to see it. It definitely is an impact on nature that I'm studying, but we put it in the climate science part. One of the harder questions is how do we know what the climate of the past is? That's basically the question. It's not word for word, but, and then we list all these, or what nat rather it's what natural phenomenon allow us to understand the climate of the past. And then we list all these things. We list uh, coral, we list tree rings, we list pollen, we list um, fossils and like something else. Oh yeah, ice cores, that's an important one. And so then there's a, all of the above, right? And so the truth is that all of these can help us understand the climate of the past. And so one of these is tree rings, which I'm studying. So it fits in that way. It's that we could understand that what we're going through are the changes in climate that we're seeing. We understand that they're the context of them because of these natural climate recordings. Uh, we call them climate proxies. So it, it's natural phenomena that has information about the climate within it mm -hmm. that just waiting to be tapped waiting to be tapped yeah. uh pun intended tapping trees <laughs> um we're not pulling sap but we're still doing the tap yeah so what's a, what's a day in the life like for a climate science researcher who taps into the knowledge inherent in tree rings i feel like you're not just sitting in a lab all day Right. So what interested me the most about this, and still it's what interests me the most, is was the field work because mm -hmm. the way that I got it, I got the gig was at first as a, like a, a research assistant for this professor, and um, she advertised it through emails. She sent an email to like the honor students who were doing research in their undergraduate degree, and was like, "I need somebody." who wants to go to guest BC for three weeks to sample trees and can speak French. And, and you were like, c'est moi. <laughs> exactly. A lot of people in, uh, in my program at Concordia were from like Ontario and uh, the Atlantic provinces. And so anyway, um, you had a leg up, you were had a leg up for over the past three years. I've spent around three weeks every summer going to guest BC, which is in, like central Quebec, central eastern Quebec, around nine, nine and a half hours from Montreal. And there's a park there called uh, Parc National de la Gaspésie, Gaspésie National Park. We collaborated with them. They allowed us to go sample trees, like really old trees that are protected in the park. And that allowed us to understand the local climate because one of the big problems with understanding the context of climate change 
and understanding whether uh, we're seeing significant changes in specific regions because regionally climate change is actually quite variable in that like northern Quebec will be very differently affected at a different rate than like parts of southern Quebec or central Quebec Whoa, and depending even, even like within the province I mean Quebec is huge yeah it's massive I think is it the biggest I think it's the biggest province I, I believe so I know I mean, yeah, biggest province, but Northwest Territories, I think, is... Anyway. Yeah, Northwest um, Territories. We'll forget about Northwest Territories. It's a territory. If anyone is province. from Northwest Territories listening to this podcast, move to Quebec. We're bigger. <laughs> just, just move. Bigger is better. <laughs> no, it's okay. We, we, we appreciate any and all Northwest Territories listeners. Absolutely. Please stick with us. Um, so, okay. All right. So, what do... Uh, you mentioned that there were a whole bunch of different ways that we could answer the question of how do we know what the climate of the past is? We have coral, we have pollen, fossils, ice cores. What do tree rings give us? What, what is special about tree rings? What kind of unique way do tree rings allow us to tap into the fundamental nature of the past of the climate? So what's great about tree rings is, well, first of all, there's trees all over the world in different areas. Whereas like, if you look at corals, they're much less present and same with ice cores. So ice cores, you can only go to either Alpine glaciers or the glaciers in the North South pole, but trees allow us to look at very specific regions and understand the climate because every year they put on a ring of growth. That's why you see these rings in a seasonal climate. At least if you actually go in the tropics, you don't really see these rings as distinctly because they're growing all year. So that's interesting, actually. In seasonal climates, we have these rings every year. And there are limiting factors on that control how big these rings get. So if you take a tree in a park that has all the a park, let's say Montreal, that has all the light it wants, there's no competition of nearby trees, it gets plenty of water, you'll see that if you cut it, you'll see the rings are pretty even every year because it's getting as much as it needs, as many resources as it needs to grow. But as soon as there is a limiting resource, so we'll think of it as water because that's the way, that's what I was studying. You could do it with temperature as well. For if you take a tree that's in a more stressful situation, or even a tree in a park, let's stay to the tree in the park. Let's say we have a drought in Montreal, like for a summer, it's very, very, very dry. Like unlike we've ever seen, all the trees in Montreal will likely have thinner rings that year because mm -hmm. they didn't have enough water to produce as much growth as the previous years. Sure. So if we look back in time over this tree's lifetime, we'll see whenever there's thin rings, we could assume uh, or it suggests that at least that the tree had a harder time. It didn't have enough resources. Mm -hmm. And that could and be, like you said, either from water or from a temperature change. It could be there are from factors. Yeah, there's competition. Like if, let's say a tree falls by, if we're in an actual forest, that's close canopy, meaning that like if you look up, you don't see the sky very well. There's just, the trees are covering, mm -hmm. getting pretty much all of the real estate of uh, the sunlight. Let's say a tree falls, there's a really strong wind, that tree had was rotten. If this huge tree falls down, there's this huge opening now. All the trees around that opening are gonna start growing towards the opening to take advantage of that new sunlight. So you'll see all the trees around there will have bigger rings all of a sudden for let's say 10 years while they cover up that space. 
So there's all these other factors that we have to remove to really understand the climate, uh, what the treatings are telling us about climate. What we do, so in GSVC, it has some of the highest mountains in Quebec. It's like this really mountainous area. It only has weather records from like the past 50 or so years. So that's not enough to understand what's really going on in the region. And so we saw there's a couple of studies around there looking at tree rings, but nothing directly related to climate. And so we went there, we sampled hundreds of trees and some pretty old trees there. What's great about that park is they protected, uh, of course, the mountaintops, uh, which have pretty old trees because they weren't disturbed by logging because it was just too high up. And also the trees aren't necessarily big enough. And it also has some forests like a, a cedar, uh, eastern white cedar forest that has trees that are over 500 years old. What we try to do is take as many trees as possible, sample as many trees as possible. Uh, so sample the tree rings. And then for each site, we average together all the tree rings. We date them and we average them together to get what the general growth is at that site. So by having so many trees, we get rid of like any weird factors that might right. trees affect individual down, trees. Yeah. We average it out. So we do that for multiple sites in the park. What's your sample size like for something like that? Like how many tree cores do you take? Do you take on the order of like 50, 100, 1,000? So on the order of, of 100. Okay. So when, when we could, we would take more. But most sites, it's like you want to stick to one species per site. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to be taking cedar and let's say uh, fir or spruce. Basically, we went to a site and found all the possible cedars we could. So it was fun, it was like a treasure hunt, almost like you go and oh, there's a cedar here, I'll go sample and then you get to see how old it is. And so we have a bunch of sites of these cedars and we create these chronologies, it's called, which is this average growth per year. And we tried to pick sites that were particularly water stressed. So the part of the climate we were looking at was the moisture in the region, because that tends to be more limiting than temperature on trees in the boreal forest at least meaning that again when the years that there's not much water the the rings are thin and vice versa so moisture being like uh available water content exactly so sure the amount of precipitation but also the amount of snow that built up and made it so that early spring was pretty wet because of all the snow melting mm -hmm. and this area is also one of the and so it has some of the highest mountains in quebec and it's also the part of Quebec that gets the most water, the most precipitation. To really emphasize this moisture stress, we pick trees that were growing on cliffs because uh, if they're growing on cliffs, they're like close to the rock bed, right? That there's not much soil under them. So their roots, what's cool about cedars is that they grow very horizontally uh, rather than having this really deep roots. And so they could grab onto cliffs and there's not much soil there. So how do you sample a tree that's falling off a cliff? <laughs> yeah, but they're, they're pretty, the, it's really impressive the way they tie themselves around the rocks um, and really like go into the cracks in the rocks and anchor themselves down. Like our oldest tree, I almost, I almost like fell into the river getting it because it was at the bottom of a cliff because we were sampling cliffs along the river, the big river in the area. It was, it looked really like old, and also stressed out and so we're like "Ooh, that looks really good and so i started climbing down to it and the rock was really brittle and 
just from my weight, the rock broke off and I started sliding down the cliff towards the tree. And I was able to grab onto the tree to stop myself. And below me, like 10 feet below me was like a raging river. I would have been fine. I might have like broken a foot or something because it was rocks there. But so, yeah, it was pretty intense sometimes. How many ethics approval forms do you need to get before they send students out into sliding down cliffs to go measure tree ring sizes? Yeah, she doesn't. Oh, my, my supervisor goodness. doesn't like me talking about that. So uh, <laughs> we won't I'll, name you. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Alex. Alex just slides down cliff sides to collect <laughs> to collect tree ring samples above raging rapids. <laughs> He's a very but, dude. It was so worth it because it was our oldest tree. It was uh, better than worth it. Yeah, it was. You get down there. Oh, this is just a baby. It's ten years old. What a waste! It was four hundred and fifty-six years old, and it was that's only. Crazy. It wasn't even that big, so that's how stressed out this tree was. Is that it's growing so little every year because it doesn't have much water, doesn't have much soil. That's that so sad. It, I'm just thinking about the juxtaposition of a four hundred fifty-six-year-old tree who's staring at a raging river its entire <laughs> life for almost half of a millennium. It's like, oh, the water's so close. I can, yeah. it. and it's and it's just uh, gripping onto the rocks. Like, come on, man! <laughs> what a sad yeah, it's reality. A life for some it's of those a Sisyphean trees. feat for that tree. Oh my goodness. And so, yeah, it was four hundred fifty-six years old, but it was maybe about like as thick as uh 15 inches 15 inches okay yeah so like a ruler plus three inches not it, probably around the ruler a ruler so it's that small that's pretty small 456 years yeah i mean i'm like about six feet tall and i was six feet when i was 17 or 18 so it took me 18 years to get six feet tall. Again, of course, my girth um, is, is my I guess, girth. more importantly related. But my, my, yeah, my hips are about 12 to 13 inches wide. So it took me maybe, maybe 13 or 14 years to get there. So take that, trees. <laughs> so yeah, so we basically sample all these trees. Then... If you put it on a as a time series, so on a graph, every year is the average tree ring in an area. Um, you'll see it'll go up and down, up and down, up and down, whatever over time. And then what we do is we take the weather records from that area, which will also be going up and down, up and down over time. And for the period that they overlap, which for us was like 1960 something to 2018, you'll see that they'll match in certain areas. So the years that the growth was very little you'll you go and look at the same year in the precipitation data and you'll see there was not much precipitation that year so that's it's a bit simplified but basically what we're doing is we sample all these trees and we'll get a chronology that goes back like 200 300 years and for the period that it overlaps with the weather records we model that relationship between the tree rings and the precipitation data and then that modeled relationship we apply it to the rest of the tree rings to recreate what the what the moisture was like what the precipitation was like in that area for the whole length of our tree ring chronology does that make sense that does make sense but it seems like highly reductionist it seems like i I also have no idea what tree ring precipitation models look like or how they are built at all like, okay, so how should I say this? The last 50 years doesn't necessarily 
properly describe the last 300 years in terms of like fluctuate like for example you were saying there are a lot of outliers in terms of like besides trees falling maybe i'm wrong like is there really not that much variability in 300 years well of course it's uh there is some uncertainty and like we're we're not there's some issues too with the fact that climate has changed over the past 50 years compared to let's say the 150 years before mm -hmm. so the relationship may have changed to a certain degree so we're, we're not saying it's a perfect representation of what the moisture conditions used to be it just gives us sort of a context to understand okay how much has the moisture conditions changed because of climate change over the past mm -hmm. 50 years and what do we find uh, then in this model like could you maybe tell us a bit about what goes into the model so what um, kind of information do you feed into it? Like, are you feeding in temperature, precipitation, like other th historical records, not from tree rings, but from elsewhere? Like, do you mix the tree ring data with the ice core data and the fossil data? I know these are different regions, right? Mm -hmm. But just to get more like global, global measures. Yeah, so because we're looking at a pretty short time scale when it comes to recreating past climate, like there's, there's recreation of past climate that go like over a thousand years. So those ones are compared to ice cores and to other things, but because ours is more, it's more regionally specific and depending on the methods we use, like we're looking at sort of short term patterns in climate as opposed to larger term patterns. I guess I, I was curious to know um, like what goes into the model and then also how you relate your data from tree rings right. to the other methods of extracting information. Right. So, an important part of this is that we we just check what the correlations are between the tree rings, the tree ring chronologies, and the weather data. So we did it against the local temperature data. We did it against the local precipitation data from multiple nearby stations. Also, what we found was best was actually the stream flow data. So stream flow is just how much water is going through a river we use the average of the month. And so this is actually a, a better representation of how much moisture is in a, in a system and an environment because a river is getting its, all its water from precipitation, right? Mm -hmm. Or snow so, melting. Yeah, exactly. So instead of having this little receptacle that's recording precipitation, and there's a lot of problems with that just because of wind and other factors and how variable precipitation is, the amount of water that's in a river will be a delayed representation of how much precipitation there was okay. over a longer period of time. So you get gotcha. a better representation of a region. So our okay. trees actually matched best. So they were significantly correlated to the amount of water that was in the system, in this, in this main river that goes near, that passes by these trees. What's the delay? Is it like weeks, months, or? Yeah, it's like, it's like a month. Okay. So it, ta it takes about a month for, uh, let's say, precipitation from the top of the mountains to really flow through the ground and make it back into the river. Maybe less than a month, like two, three weeks. Okay. Okay, so I'll go back to your question. So what goes into the model? So we find what what's correlates significantly. It wasn't just a stream flow, but stream flow had the highest correlations. And... I mean, not to get in the nitty gritty, but it's, we use multiple linear regression to model the relationship. And then um, 
not to get into the nitty gritty, but insert complicated name of statistical analysis <laughs> method here. <laughs> but I, like, I don't, I'm not sure. sure what else I could say. It goes no, into no, it because it's really, it's not really much say, yeah. like the two data sets are really just our tree ring chronologies. But like, for example, we had uh, eight different sites. So in the end, we use only the best sites. And we're also using a lagged relationship, meaning that some trees uh, or some sites rather They'll have a lag relationship in that uh, the, it's only the it's the water f- availability from the year before that affects the the rings of the next year because trees store energy mm-hmm. so if they have a particularly bad year but the year before was actually a good year they stored up some extra energy and are able to sort of make up for it but then if they have two bad years in a row then you'll really see that effect on the second year because it used up all its extra energy for the previous year. So I see. So you kind of compare the adjacent years to give yeah. you an idea of what's happening locally. Yeah. So when we're modeling the relationship, we're we're taking these different chronologies and we're also we're also, we're also lagging them a year to sort of refine the 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 model. Okay. Yeah. Like a little buffer. Yeah. The park was really supportive of this project because um, they have the mascot of the park. So it's one of the biggest parks by revenue, if I remember correctly, in Quebec. So it's a really stock popular. ticker that I can uh, that I can purchase. <laughs> I want to get in on this. Yeah. Um, it, so they, it's a corporation. This park. Yeah, I hope I hope it won't ever be that. <laughs> sure. Okay, so highest revenue. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, the but, capitalist pig this park yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they the the mascot of the park is the caribou is it a real like, caribou that they have like hired as a mascot like they they're, just, <laughs> they're actually the biggest employer in the region also all the caribou, <laughs> all the caribou are mascots Minimum wage. yeah so they employ all these caribou but the caribou are dying oh. um it's just the mascot as in like all their their logos have a mm-hmm. caribou on it sure. and like you go yeah. when you go into the reception there's caribou pictures everywhere okay. but the problem is that the caribou are dying they've been like their numbers have been going down for the past 50 years mm-hmm. and they're not exactly sure why and it's getting pretty it's becoming a pretty dire situation where they're down to 80 individuals in the park mm-hmm. 80 caribous and it's the last population of caribou on that side, on this side of the St. Lawrence River. So of course there's there's plenty of caribou in on the other side of this mm-hmm. of the St. Lawrence River and a lot of them are doing okay. But if but the this population don't swim so they can't get across the St. Lawrence. Yeah. That, that's yeah. the problem. Yeah. We need some caribou used- floaties. <laughs> <laughs> and they're genetically different from all these other populations. So they're really trying to conserve these caribou because if they die the, that subspecies of caribou is gone forever okay fair enough and so they want to understand like what's the context like why is why are these caribou dying any information additional information they could get they want it so the amount of water in various ways affects how caribou's how well they breed and, uh, so they're interested because of that they're also interested because the park has uh, there's a lot of these really nice cabins for really rich people that uh, fish salmon because the mm-hmm. the river that we worked with is a really important at Atlantic salmon spawning ground so that the salmon come from the ocean 
and they'll go and have their all their lay all their eggs in the river and fishers will will uh, fish for these salmon and pay a lot of money that they were very supportive of our work and like we're hoping that it's going to be able to help them understand what's going on with the salmon the rich people are supportive of your work yes every everything is just pointing to this to this to this economic churning part (laughs) out over here and nine and a half hours outside of montreal we got rich folk who are fishing for atlantic salmon uh we got the caribou population dwindling this is is a busy place why is this not in the news every day i want to know what's happening at parc national de gaspésie you'll definitely hear about it if you go there but people aren't Mm -hmm. so no interested in the specifics but uh, yeah, my could we, take, uh, could we take like samples from the caribou to gauge what is happening in the environment? I say half jokingly, but also like, can we, can we like, I don't know, like test the blood of the caribou or something? I haven't read anything about that. I don't, okay. I don't, I don't think so. But uh, I mean, they have GPS collars. I think that's the most useful thing they could do directly to the caribou like mm-hmm. there was one time i was at on the the summit of like one of, of i think it's it's the second highest mountain in quebec and we actually sampled there as well did you also slide down a cliff there or no 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 because i definitely would have died <laughs> you only do one one cliff slide per per annum <laughs> and uh this caribou walked out you're supposed to you're they like warned us like do not bother the caribou like if you see caribou walk the other way and so i went and i walked alone along this little path and uh, of course a caribou walked up to me and i had a gps collar and uh it just sort of stared at me they look like little cows and they just started walking towards me and i was like all right there's nothing i could do and it just walked right by me and looked at me with this gps collar so they're they're tracking these populations and they're studying the uh the wolves hybridized with coyotes over the past 30 years in the region they think that's a big issue as well because you have these like the predators yeah these hybrid wolf coyotes that are attacking their uh, the little caribou calves and oh so, so yeah. these caribou are actually small you said they're like a small cow but cows are massive so these are hey, yeah i mean a caribou well, be quite large is the caribou kind of like a deer size yeah it's like okay. it's like a deer i was picturing it more like a moose no, moose are significantly larger. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of moose there too. I've I've seen uh, dozens of moose. I actually got uh, approached by a moose in the middle of the night. Did I tell you this story? Mm, I don't think so. But tell us. So, we got the park was really nice to us in that they let us stay in this ski cabin, a uh, really nice wood cabin, for like dirt cheap. And every night I would. Uh, I would go out into this open like gravel lot that was kind of in the forest. I was trying to overcome like my fear of the dark. So I would just go in the yeah. complete dark, like scared shitless, but just I was like, I'll just play my guitar and I'll get over it. Mm-hmm. Cause I knew that there was nothing that could actually like, there could be a black bear that, but even black bear, there was nothing really dangerous that could hurt me at night. So I was like, I'll just do it. And that way I could play guitar and have like some alone time. And so I would just stand in the middle of this lot and play guitar at night. And then two weeks into doing that, I heard like walking on the gravel 
and I was like, okay, like there's a path like farther up. And I was like, okay, some people might just be passing by because I had seen people passing by, but they would always have flashlights. And then the walkie kept coming towards me and getting louder and louder. And I just stopped playing and I'm like, hello. <laughs> and there was no answer. And it just kept walking towards me. I was like, hello, who is this? And, <laughs> oh, God. And then so I grabbed my phone and I turn on my light and I just see these two orbs super high, not like super high up, but as high up as a moose. So I just see these two huge orbs and it's, it's just a huge moose standing there coming towards me because apparently they're really auditory creatures. If you look at their, their ears, they're very, they could move in different directions. They're very, they're like little satellite dishes. Wow. Okay. And because they will go, they're mountain creatures. They walking through dense forests. They, they have, they're very sensitive to sound because that's how they communicate. So apparently he was just interested and the music I was playing, he was curious and he walked up to me and stayed about like maybe 10 feet away from me and just stood there for like, well, we just stared at each other for like what felt like 10 seconds. And then I started freaking out. So I started like making loud noises and waving at him and then he ran away. Oh, is that what you're supposed to do? No, I was just so afraid <laughs> that... I mean, they were like, whatever you do, don't make a loud noise. <laughs> you're like, ah! well, yeah, well, whenever, whenever you're attacked by a predator, usually at least I know for a mountain cougar, uh, mountain lion stuff, you're supposed to be loud and big and scare them away. I know with like huge bears, you're supposed to play dead. But with moose, which I found out later and I kind of knew, but they're not dangerous at all unless it's during mating season where they have like a, the males have a bunch of testosterone going on mm-hmm. pumping through their blood. And you so were wearing I didn't, lipstick I, that night. So <laughs> you were, <laughs> you were, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so I talked to park ranger later and he, he just said, uh, yeah, you have nothing to, to be afraid about the, he was just curious. And if it's not mating season, which it's not mating season is in the fall, then he won't hurt you. I took a couple of days off, but then I started going back and trying to get him to come back and see like if he would come even closer believe it or not like five days later it happened again whoa and same moose i imagine Mm -hmm. well there was a moose hanging out like we saw a moose in the evening a couple times and he was just like walking around our cabin so i imagine it was him Uh, so i did it again and i was like this time i won't use the flashlight to see how close he'll get and I didn't expect it to happen again, but it was happening again. The, I, the same exact thing happened where I heard walking coming towards me and I was like, okay, calm down. I just kept playing. And then eventually I, the sound just stopped, like no more walking. And it was just complete silence, but I felt that something was there and I couldn't help myself from using my flashlight. So I turned on the flashlight and I kid you not, that moose was there again with another moose. Oh, this sounds unbelievable but i swear on my life this is what happened and they just stood there and i turned my light off right away and i just played the song i was playing i finished the song i started playing another song and then they just walked away they didn't like the second song no they didn't like the second song they're like no no more more uh more another brick in the wall We we don't want this uh so yeah that was like 
my most exciting experience other than falling down the cliff, I guess. Wow. But I uh, highly recommend going to Guest VC. It's probably one of the most beautiful places this side of Canada. That's awesome. You hear that, listeners? Gaspé Z. Get in a car, nine and a half hours, find a nice playlist. Maybe Alex can make you a mixtape of, <laughs> uh, of his Moose, Moose album. And then you can listen to that on the way. I do have one final question for you, which I have asked all of my guests. So if you've been a day one listener, then you already know what this question is. I'm going to try to use the most optimized version as of yet, which is, how would you describe yourself as an academic in one word and as a person outside of academics in another word? And would those two words be the same? Definitely outside of academia, I would say curious. And then in academia, I would say generalist. Generalist. Yeah, I hope that's a word. Hmm. I think, yeah, it's a word. It's definitely a word. Do, can I describe why? I'm yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. Not limited to one word. Um, so curious just because like I've always... My my parents, my dad specifically, always told me, and I saw it in childhood viewers, I would ask why to everything from the age of four to like seven. Like my dad would say something and be like, why, why, why? And uh, then he'd always say, because Y comes after X to shut me up. And Did it work? Yeah. yeah. Good, good for your dad. Good for trying him. Trying to kind stifle of- my curiosity. <laughs> You said no. <laughs> I'm going to slide down a hundred cliffs until I figure out the answer. And so uh, I've, I, I like to know, and the generalist is because I, I have a hard time going really deep into something. I tend to like to know the general ideas of everything. Mm-hmm. And I have everything of like much more things. And that's sort of been a challenge with me in academia is that you're, you're expected to go very deep into one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a really high and specificity. That, yeah, that's hard for me. And that's, again, why, to go back to the climate emergency, emergency committee, is why I was so passionate about that is that I had to dive so deep into understanding tree rings and climate, but I felt like I didn't know all the, like, I didn't know enough about the general context of what this all means. And so it allowed me to really research and get a more general idea. And that's also sort of why I think, because uh, I'm supposed to do a PhD in that I've, I've been accepted and I have funding and it's supposed to be within the same like trees and climate as well, but mm-hmm. in different areas in Quebec. And also instead of reconstructing, so what we did with trees is we reconstructed the moisture of the area for the past 215 years. And we want to do the same thing with temperature uh, and that is done by taking trees that are growing at the top, top, top of these really tall mountains where it's actually temperature that controls their growth because mm. it's just so much, it's like five to like eight degrees colder up there than down in the valley. So yeah, so part of the reason I'm unsure, I've, I have to decide soon if I'm actually going to go through the PhD is just because I am, I feel like I'm a generalist and going even deeper into this. It's, I feel like it's going to be hard for me to stay focused. 
Um, good point. I think I feel similarly, but I, I would say if you're going to go into any academic field, it doesn't matter how focused you're going to get. I think to be as successful as possible and as well-rounded as possible, you need to have both a specific and the general understanding. I don't th you could definitely be a generalist without going into the details, but if you do want to do a PhD, I think that that almost requires you have that generalist interest and that you actually can build that foundation. So I wouldn't necessarily count yourself out. I, I, again, I, I am on a similar page. I do like to kind of focus on the big picture, but if you spend some time building up that big picture and then seeing how your thesis for your PhD fits into the grand scheme, that could potentially be one way to go about it. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I appreciate that. Happy to chat about it more at some other time, for sure. <laughs> um, PhD is, I wouldn't say PhD is something that, that you should take lightly or that anybody should take lightly as a recent master's completer or as anybody, you know, it isn't something that you want to do unless you're 100% sure that you want it. But if you enjoy what you do, and uh, you could maybe see how that specificity kind of nestles itself nicely into the bigger picture might be an interesting way to spend the next three to four years of your life. Yeah, I have so. some, I have a couple of months to reflect on it. So this would be like a September 2020 start. No, I, I could start in uh, January, which is nice. Okay. At Concordia as well. Yes. Okay. This would be continuing. Cool. Awesome. I think we'll leave it at that. Really nice having you on. Uh, this, was, this was quite informative and definitely out of my general academic comfort zone. So I really appreciate you bringing us there. Anything that you'd like to impart to the listener? Anything that you want to say? Advice. Yeah. Life advice, academic advice. Give us, give us something. So first, thank you for having me, Jeremy. It was really a pleasure. Nice. And it feels good to reflect on all these things after having done it. <sighs> advice academic advice i would say the supervisor is very important i think and i was really lucky that i got a supervisor that i got along really well with and especially if you're doing field work if you end up with a supervisor that you are not jiving with it'll be a hard two years or a hard four years so uh, I really highly recommend to choose supervisors over universities themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a good point, especially if you have to do field work. Cause I, I was, if you're stuck with somebody that is really hard to be with for a couple weeks, uh, it could wear down on you and then you're still going to be stuck with them. And I, I wouldn't have been able to do this if my supervisor was not as generous and committed as she was. So unless, yeah. yeah, unless you're a really independent person, highly recommend uh, spending a lot of time finding the right supervisor for you and interview them just as much as they're interviewing you, you know? Awesome. Cool. That's great. That's a perfect, perfect thing to leave the listeners with. Uh, I, I am hoping or, or presuming that some of the listeners will be, embarking on a master's degree at some point or are currently finishing an undergraduate. So that is perfectly applicable to who I presume might be listening at this current moment. So Fantastic. thanks again, Alex. Really nice having you on. This is Abstract Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at Abstract Cast on Instagram. 
If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.